1: Welcome to Unfiltered. I'm Essie Cup. Here's tonight's headline. Iowa what now? It is five days after the Iowa caucus and we still do not have official results. And in the latest twist, presidential campaigns for Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have submitted their respective evidence of inconsistencies from the count. And the Iowa Democratic Party moments ago announced it is reviewing results from 95 Iowa precincts, making up about 5 percent of the total count. Unsurprisingly, the memes out of Iowa abounded. It was called the Iowa carcass. It was likened to a dumpster fire. Bring in the count, they joked. Or maybe rock, paper, scissors would have netted better results. How could this have happened? Sharpies, coin tosses, technical glitches, and reporting inconsistencies resulted in one of the most chaotic and confounding caucus nights. But then, I repeat myself, in modern history. Adding to the confusion, Trump supporters on 4chan reportedly encouraged prank calls into the Iowa caucus hotline. Hilarious, guys. But look, this is no laughing matter. We're busy people. If you're like me, you multitask like a pro. Right now, as I do this live show, I'm also texting with a source, ordering dinner for my family, DMing a friend, and knitting a sweater under the desk. Modern technology has simplified even the most complicated of decisions and tasks, including voting, or so we thought. For all those reasons, it's easy to forget that what we are doing right now, casting our first ballots for the next president of the United States was envisioned by the founding fathers as one of our most singularly important duties and rights. The founders knew that everything in an experimental would-be democracy would hinge on this very thing, the ability of its citizens to determine their own fates through the radical act of voting. Samuel Adams, yes, he of the great Boston Lager, wrote in 1781 Let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is not making a present or a compliment to please an individual, or at least that he ought not so to do, but that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society, for which he is accountable to God and his country. And Alexander Hamilton, yes, he of the award winning Broadway musical wrote, just a few years later in 1784, a share in the sovereignty of the state, which is exercised by the citizens at large in voting at elections, is one of the most important rights of the subject, and in a republic, ought to stand foremost in the estimation of the law. And nearly a 100 years later, James Garfield, he not of the Jim Davis comic strip, wrote, now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character Of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. Indeed. So here we are, trying to make one of the most important decisions a citizenry can make, and we're being asked to do so in the midst of an absolute cacophony of crazy. And it's not just the failures in Iowa putting undue pressure on us. And an unrelenting stress on the process. Every election usually has a surprise, maybe two, that throws a wrench into the system. This one's already had the mother load. Think about it. During this election cycle, the sitting president of the United States was impeached and acquitted. We came to the brink of war with Iran just a month ago. The Dow has hit record highs, unemployment record lows... A total of 29 candidates entered the Democratic primary, including two who got in just over two months ago, and 11 are still in it. We've already had an election integrity scandal in the first contest. Likewise, we know that at least three separate foreign countries are trying to influence the 2020 elections. That's according to our own intelligence officials. In short, we're a Gary Hart monkey business, a Bush gore hanging Chad, a George W. Bush DUI, and a McCain campaign suspension all at the same time. And it's only February. How can you be expected to make a decision about who should run the country with all this detritus flying around in the air? So here's the deal. How you doing? Are you hanging in there, America? Because this is not normal. In fact, I think it's really unfair. It's unfair to you that the president of the United States has tried multiple times to interfere with your electoral process and may do so again. I think it's unfair to you that Republicans in Congress are totally unconcerned by this, that they decided that keeping their jobs was more important than doing their jobs. I think it's unfair to you that the Democratic National Committee has essentially said to you, trust us as they figure out in real time how to count votes in a primary. And it's unfair to you that this nonsense is your government at work.
2: I believe that the president has learned from this case. I tore up a manifesto of mistruths. We
3: first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. (laughs) This is sort of a day of celebration because... We went through hell. Then you have some that used religion as a crutch. They never used it before. If I were Mitch
4: McConnell, I would expel Mitt Romney from the Republican caucus.
1: Part of me thinks, yep, Garfield's right. We got the government we deserve and it's broken. But another part of me still believes we deserve better, a lot better. So let's demand it. Back in a minute after the mess that was the iowa caucus democrats were left scrambling to move on to new hampshire without a clear winner at last night's debate the idea was to reset build momentum and get a couple last licks in before the next primary but instead for some reason unknown to me they traded tepid talking points and milquetoast campaign slogans that is when they weren't gushing over each other
5: Senator Klobuchar, you
6: serve with Senator Sanders in the Senate. Is he going to be able to get the support? (laughs) Not if you you like him, but is he going to be able to get the support that he needs from Republicans?
1: (laughs) Okay. I like Bernie just fine. And this is what passed for taking each other on last
7: night. Mayor Buttigieg uh, is a great guy and a real patriot. He's a a mayor of a small city who uh, has done some good things but has not demonstrated he has the ability to, and we'll soon find out, to get a broad scope of support across the spectrum, including African Americans and Latinos.
5: We
0: need a perspective right now that will finally allow us to leave the politics of the past in the past. Turn the page and bring change to Washington before it's too late. We
5: have a newcomer in the White House, and look where it got us. I think having some experience is a good thing. Ooh, sick burns, guys.
1: You guys do know this is a competition, right? And there's only one winner. In the immortal words of the real world, it's time to stop being polite and start getting real. So how does Iowa and this lukewarm debate last night preview what could happen in New Hampshire on Tuesday. Joining me to figure it out, former press secretary for the Kamala Harris campaign, Ian Sams, and executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, Neil Levesque. Um, Ian, last night's debate, for me, was not full contact. It was powder puff. And it had me longing for (laughs) Kamala Harris and her stealth moves. Um, In that debate moment where she sparred with Joe Biden, she looked like she wanted to win and i didn't see anyone last night who looked like they wanted to win what did you think
2: you and me both you and me both i wish uh, i wish she's still in this race and was still competing as well but look uh the nature of these campaigns are that they're long and challenging and i think that what we saw last night the reason that people are playing relatively nice with one another is that this field is broadly united on the fact that when we have a nominee we need to come together behind them and not risk any intra-party right. mess Uh, hurting our ability to defeat Donald Trump in November. And so I think that there is reticence from our Democratic candidates right now to really go full-throatedly at each other uh, because of a fear that maybe it could affect our general election prospects in damaging someone too much. Uh, And so I I think that that they're just kind of playing nice while trying to distinguish themselves positively.
1: But that's exactly it. Isn't the goal to distinguish themselves, to make distinctions for voters? And they were all saying how much they liked each other, and you had Tom Steyer putting a sort of a button on it by screaming we all agree on everything. I mean, how does that help voters?
2: Yeah. I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, this has been a relatively tame primary with not a lot of contrast and distinction. I think, you know, you saw last night one memorable moment for me was Vice President Biden uh, did take on Senator Sanders on his relatively weak uh, history on gun reform back, you know, mm-hmm. decades ago, uh, and and it's kind of one of those moments where you see it happen in the debate, and you wonder why hasn't this happened already? You know, why right. has why have they not engaged each other more directly? And I do think that there is a little bit of fear and concern about alienating each other's supporters, but mm. you know, I think as this race gets tighter and tighter, you're going to see more and more direct conflict. Just today, again, Vice President Biden has gone mm-hmm. after Mayor Buttigieg with a negative uh, digital ad, and so yeah. I think that as things get Hotter and more contests get under our belt, you'll see a little bit more distinction.
1: So, Neil, you were in, you were at the debate. You were in the room. Um, people say that Amy Klobuchar had a good night, and, and, in fact, she raised $2 million overnight. Did it feel like her night inside the room where you were?
3: Uh, definitely. I think that she got pretty good ratings out of what happened last night. But you're right. You know, the, the gloves really didn't come off. I would say that if anyone did... Sort of go on attack and create contrast. It was Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. And there seems to be, with all of these debates, it seems to be that they're not really too interested in taking each other on, whether it's for their own self-interest, thinking that at some point in time, they'll need the other person's support and their supporters. Um, But the thing is, is we've hosted these debates at St. Anselm for a long time. Four years ago, we also hosted a debate with Donald Trump on the stage with 13 Republicans. And if any of these Democrats believe that they're going to be able to have that same approach on a stage next fall, uh, they're wrong. Mm. This is a this is a a fight that they need to show. And I think they need to show it to Democratic voters.
1: Well, just just as, a, as an asterisk, I have been saying for months, I don't think Donald Trump is going to show up to debate anyone. But I, I take your point. Uh, it, this has not been a preparation for for facing off with with Donald Trump. And, and Neil, the Biden the Biden camp is now sort of d- downplaying the significance of New Hampshire. And Biden himself basically conceded Concede uh, defeat last night already. Take a listen.
7: I took a hit in Iowa, and I'll probably take a hit here. Traditionally, Bernie won by 20 points last time, and uh, usually it's the neighboring senators who do well.
1: I'll probably take a hit here, uh, Neil. That's a strategy, I guess.
3: That was the most amazing moment in the debate. Now hmm. here you have the former Vice President of the United States, and he's lagging in the polls. He didn't get a trophy out of Iowa. And now he's already, before the voting has started, conceding to the fact that he's going to lose. And he gives it away to the fact that Bernie lives in a neighboring state, which is amazing to me. It's almost as if he didn't he wasn't vice president for eight years getting yeah. all that earned media and all that that focus on him. So I think that that's just an amazing thing. Right. And then if, if you add that to the point that, You know, he had this big change up in his own campaign management at the same time. He's changed what he was doing now with New Hampshire. He's gone on attack against Buttigieg. It's it's a very strange situation.
1: Um, Ian, today's CNN Uh, University of New Hampshire. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say one thing about this. I think that the Biden campaign very clearly is trying to reframe everyone's thinking into believing that Iowa and New Hampshire just don't really matter that much for them, mm-hmm. they, that their strategy is always focused on South Carolina and Super Tuesday. And so they're kind of going above and beyond to really emphasize that yeah. they expect to do badly here. Uh, and, and and I don't I'm not sure that that's the wisest tack. I think, you know, today I was at a forum put on by Demand Justice here in Concord, New Hampshire, and all the top candidates were there besides Joe Biden. And he was, I think, doing a, a, an OT stop on his own, an unscheduled stop here in the community. But it doesn't send a good signal if uh, you're not present and fighting with all you've got in every moment between now and Tuesday. And so I think that they're really just trying to get people to stop thinking that New Hampshire is going to be central to their strategy and start thinking about Nevada, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday.
1: Yeah, I heard. I heard one of Biden's um, campaign people the other day say, "Well, we really look at the first four contests as a package." And I thought, "What? What does that even mean?" Uh, but you know, you gotta you gotta try and spin it in your favor. Um, I want both of your takes before I go on New Hampshire voters. I mean, I I grew up in neighboring Massachusetts. I am a Masshole, um, and I know that. <laughs> Massachusetts voters are very different from New Hampshire voters and Vermont voters are very different. But for Warren and for Bernie, um, how do each of you expect them to do in New Hampshire real quick?
3: Neil, we'll Well, start with you. I disagree with the... I disagree with the idea that someone's from a neighboring state and therefore they're going to do well. I think Democrats yeah. right now are really focused on beating Donald Trump and they're going to pick the best candidate. And I think the fact that Buttigieg is from a state far away is
2: evidence to that. Yeah, Ian? Yeah, I, And to add on to what Neil said there, I mean, you look at the numbers over the last week. We've had the the daily tracking polls coming out of New Hampshire and it's Pete Buttigieg who's rising. I mean, at this point on this That's trajectory, right. he's going to win on Tuesday. And so, you know, the Bernie Sanders does have a little bit of an advantage in this state, having won it so significantly four years ago. I know that yeah. I was on Hillary's campaign and we we lost big here. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that he had an advantage coming in, but Pete Buttigieg has erased it. And if you see voters here on the ground, and I'm sure Neil has seen some of this too, there's palpable excitement and energy around Pete Buttigieg's candidacy. And I think hmm. we'll find out on Tuesday if he is able to pull off a big surprise. But if he does, I think it's going to mix up the way we look at these later states. For a long period of time, we have thought there's no way Mayor Pete's going to be able to broaden his base and coalition to be successful in a state like Nevada or South Carolina or Super Tuesday. But I think that once voters see him, if he can win two early states, they might start changing their mind and giving him a third look.
1: Mm. Ian Neal, thank you so much from the Granite State (laughs) tonight for your insight. I appreciate it. Okay, 11 Democrats are left standing, but I want to focus on one in particular next, the one with the best chance of winning the nomination. That's according to latest polling. And the president's direct and transactional appeal to African-American voters is laughable to some. But should Democrats be concerned? The tweet was straightforward and concise. We are the strongest campaign to defeat Donald Trump. That was the bold declaration from Bernie Sanders yesterday, making the case for his electability in a primary where that has consistently been questioned by other Democrats. He's got some fresh proof to back that up. A good, if unclear, sort of second place finish in Iowa. Polling that shows him beating Trump in head to head general matchups and perhaps most convincingly money. Lots of it. Sanders raised a whopping $25 million in January, more than his fundraising numbers in the first and second quarters of 2019 combined. Contrast that to Joe Biden, who is hemorrhaging money, or Elizabeth Warren, who's hemorrhaging staff in key states like Nevada. Sanders is in an enviable position. He's got the resources to go as long as he wants, but can he still win it all? With me now is Democratic strategist Matt Bennett, who is the co-founder of Third Way, a think tank promoting centrist ideas, along with Democratic strategist and host of The Resistance Abroad on Sirius XM, Nayara Haq. Um, Nayara, it feels like Sanders has sort of cleared the progressive
5: lane for himself. Is Warren still a threat to him? We tend to forget that Warren actually came in third when she was a, true. A, and ahead of Biden, right? It's it true. doesn't seem to be part of the conversation yeah. that we're having heading into New Hampshire. Uh, but what I find fascinating about the Bernie coalition is that it has lasted since 2015, right? Mm-hmm. He is the only one in this entire race who has seen something through to the convention, and he has maintained that organizing power, and we're seeing the results of it. Yeah. It's also due to him. She doesn't have that. right? Due to Bernie, that someone like Pete Buttigieg, who once said that single-payer is the compromise solution, uh-huh. that Pete Buttigieg now seems like a moderate, right? Uh So he's fundamentally changed the conversation. Elizabeth Warren comes in with a bit of a different coalition, right? She pulls from the Hillary voters. Uh, She pulls from the pragmatists because she has plans. Uh, If you say so. She has plans. Right. Lots (laughs) of plans. You may have heard of them. Okay. And and she can go into South Carolina, potentially the only Mm. person who can pull from uh, Biden's firewall with black voters. She has done a really long-term effort of uh, recruiting and reaching out to black women who are the base of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Ayanna Presley of the whole squad. Yeah. She's the one who broke from Bernie and uh, went with Warren. So there is hope and possibility for the progressive coalition. Um, but well, we'll they see. can't both win. So one of them's gonna, one's gonna gonna have to sort of. Um
1: Get a, des- a decisive lead over the other at some point. But Matt, um, Bernie's argument has been that only he can mobilize the enthusiasm to beat Trump, to to Nair's point, um, to bring new voters to the polls. That was not actually the case in Iowa. Um, it was not. You know, turnout was comparable to 2016 and below 2018. Is that a red flag for him?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the entire premise of his case is I'm going to excite the base and excite these low propensity and new voters so much yeah. that they're going to flock to the polls for me. Where were they? Mm. I mean, in 2008, the turnout was 30 percent higher than we saw last Monday. Mm-hmm. So we see zero evidence. It is true, as Nayara said, that he's held onto his base. That is for sure. And those people are yeah. unshakable and they yell at me on Twitter a lot and they're, <laughs> me too. they're very excitable. But <laughs> yeah. but those are not enough. And if we're going to be Trump, we're going to have to do a lot better than that. There is no evidence that he can do that.
1: Well, Matt, what are his deficiencies in a general? No one should argue that he can't win a primary. I think he can. What are his deficiencies in a general?
4: Deficiency number one is that he is a self-described socialist. Mm-hmm. He can put a little label before it however he wants. But he has said many times on television in his 50 years in public life, I am a socialist. Yeah. He has said on CNN, I think Americans would be delighted to pay more in taxes. <laughs> Not this American. <laughs> well, right. You don't have to be like a, you know, an opposition research genius to figure out what to do with that. <laughs> yeah. And Trump is going to have half a billion dollars to hammer our nominee. They're going to call whomever we nominate a socialist. That's for certain. Uh-huh. But if that person says they're a socialist, the the charge is going to stick a lot more easily.
1: Um, Nira Sanders um, took on Bloomberg Mm -hmm. this week and his money. Uh, Is Bloomberg a threat, not just to Sanders, but to the whole field?
5: I mean, he's certainly a threat to Donald Trump because he's the foil of the actually successful bin- billionaire uh, who is truly self-made um, and ran the entire city. I think he's also a threat to Mayor Pete in particular mm-hmm. because, you know, being mayor of New York, a little different than being mayor of South uh-huh. Bend, uh, mm-hmm. and partic- even though there have been challenges with communities of color and Democrat-based voters. Uh, I think for many people heading into this, um, if they don't get their progressive or their ideal visionary candidate, Bloomberg does come across as the ultimate, like, all right, fine, we're just going to put up a full- to Trump, a safe alternative. Safe. Who can out out money, outfund him? Sure. Uh, but it's it's you know Super Tuesday, right? We don't see him in Iowa and New Hampshire. We see him playing a game that's a couple of weeks down the road. And the challenge that presents to the party is then why even bother to have Iowa and New Hampshire to begin with? Why oh, why right. do those go first? Um, Matt, I haven't really seen anyone in
1: the Democratic primary take on Bernie. Um, I didn't see it last night. Uh, Joe Biden tried a little bit on the gun record, but. I would think that would be a huge vulnerability for Bernie Sanders in a Democratic primary. And the gloves have mostly been on when it comes to Bernie. Two questions. Uh, Does that change soon? And does that really help prepare him for a general election?
4: God, I hope so. Mm. And no, it does not. I mean, he has been in public life for 50 years. Yes. He has been a mayor and a senator and a member of Congress. No one has ever gone after him. Hillary didn't go after him in 2016 right. on the theory that she was going to beat him anyway, which she did, and that she needed his supporters in the general. That didn't work out. Twenty five percent of the people who voted for Bernie either voted for Trump or somebody else or didn't vote. Yeah. So why hasn't anyone gone after him yet? It is a mystery to me. And to your point, yeah. if they don't start to expose things in the winter and the spring, it's going to come out in the fall and that's going to be much worse. Here's what
5: Bernie can do, though. Um, He has his followers and others, even who don't agree, will say that Bernie is somebody who's always been consistent and he knows he knows how to actually fight. Right. He is he and his people do not worry about getting scrappy and getting into it. So I would be very intrigued about what him taking the fight to Donald Trump would actually look like.
1: Well, I I mean, if you're a Bernie fan, you hope that he
5: gets that far. But and will he be 80 to 90 percent of the folks who support everybody else in the feels that they'll go blue no matter who. Even James Carville, right, who has tons of criticism about what the conversation about socialism has done to the Democratic Party, said, I will support Bernie Sanders in the end. Negative partisanship, the idea that Republicans and Trump have gone too far off the end, Mm -hmm. is going to be a huge voter turnout motivator, regardless of who the nominee is.
4: To your point, though, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a big driver in the three states that matter, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. There's like you know 80,000 voters who matter in this election, Mm -hmm. and those voters can be driven by negative partisanship on the other side. Sure. and could be afraid of voting for a socialist after, you know, an unbelievable onslaught from Trump saying this guy is dangerous.
1: Uh, well, it's all very interesting. We'll have to see, you know, how Bernie does on, on Tuesday. It'll be a potentially a big night for him. Matt Nira, so good to have you both. Appreciate it. OK, the president's pitch to black voters this week has not been subtle. To some, it's been laughable. But should the conversation be less about what he's doing to appeal to this important voting block and more about what Democrats are doing to keep it. In the red file tonight, a crucial Democratic voting bloc, African Americans. Is it up for grabs? President Trump's campaign advisors seem to think so. They ran a Super Bowl ad touting his criminal justice reform featuring Alice Johnson, to whom Trump granted clemency in 2018.
7: I'm free to start over. This is the greatest day of my life. My heart is just bursting with gratitude. I want to thank President Donald John Trump.
1: His State of the Union speech was also full of explicit appeals to African-American voters.
3: Everybody said that criminal justice reform couldn't be done, but I got it done, and the people in this room got it done. Charles is one of the last surviving Tuskegee airmen the first black fighter pilots, and he also happens to be Ian's great-grandfather. To expand equal opportunity, I am also proud that we achieved record and permanent funding for our nation's historically black colleges and universities.
1: Now, you might have heard Trump likes to say he's been good for African Americans, but Whether he can actually earn enough of their vote to make a difference remains to be seen. At least one person, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, believes Trump needs to peel away just a small fraction of black voter support from Democrats to successfully successfully win re-election with me now is CNN political commentator Van Jones, who worked with Kushner to help pass the First Step Act. Simple question. Mm-hmm. Can Trump win enough black voters?
7: Well, uh, that's a complicated question. Okay. The vast majority of African-Americans voted against him in 2016, and the vast majority will vote against him again. I think 96 percent of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. 96 percent, that's close to unanimous. I think 88 percent of black men. So if you say, well, can he win the black vote? No, he cannot. However, this is where it gets complicated in Michigan, which matters uh, in Pennsylvania, which matters yep. in Wisconsin, which matters. Can he shave off enough black votes uh, to possibly put him in the winner's uh, column? That is conceivable because when you have 96 percent of the vote, there's only one way to go. Yeah. Which is down. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, you know, so so if you see any reduction at yeah. all in the black vote, it makes it tougher for Democrats.
1: Well, listen, I applaud him making overtures, um, you know, uh, to, 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 to black voters. But, um, I just wonder if the appeals to white nationalists, mm-hmm. which is overt mm-hmm. and the appeal to black voters, do th- don't those things like cancel each it, other out?
7: Yeah. Like ordinarily, <laughs> this is like, you know, peanut butter and ketchup. You yeah. can't put them on the same sandwich, right? Like ordinarily what you're dealing with. There's something interesting about the Trump coalition, which is that it is so consolidated around him Mm -hmm. that no matter what he does, uh, that, you know, core nativist base is not going to leave him. Right. So he actually, ironically, by being so strong in his appeal to the nativists, he can actually reach out to others and not not, not pay a cost.
1: Do you think it's an authentic in that? Do you think this is really an appeal for white suburban women? to say, I'm not all bad, I'm going to make you feel good, I'm doing something that you've criticized me, you know, for not doing?
7: You know, it's very hard to know why politicians do what they do. There's always a mix of motives, there's always a mix of of pulls and pushes. What I do know is this, Democrats have as our core vote the African-American vote, that's the cornerstone of our party. And in some ways, there's a feeling that maybe we've taken that vote for granted for too long. Yeah. And that's why you see Democrats doing things now that you never saw them doing before, talking about everything from criminal justice reform to reparations and yeah. the whole thing, because there's suddenly a view, hold on a second, if this constituency starts slipping away from us, mm-hmm. we could be in real trouble. Um, and I think that um, uh, uh, there is, a think, a sense inside the blue bubbles. You know, yeah. If you're in New York or L.A., say, like, oh, he'll never get a single black vote. We'll say, well, hold on a second. Well, why do you say that? Well, well he said s asshole nation. And right, uh-huh. he said uh, something about, you know, the Central Park Five, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know what? For a lot of people, that's enough of a disqualifier. But you have other people. Who might say, "Well, you know, he's doing something for black colleges. He's doing right. something for criminal justice." I'll give him a listen. Right. I, my warning to Democrats is: do not take the black vote for granted in this election, and don't pick somebody who's not going to appeal to black people, because you're going to really be hurting the cause.
3: Well,
1: I mean, as you know, Joe Biden has held the lion's share of African American support going into this election. It's mm-hmm. conceivable he doesn't end up getting the nomination. Who gets his votes?
7: You know, that's going to be very, very interesting. I think Elizabeth Warren has real appeal, and she's working really hard to get the black female vote. I mean, the the, the black women outvote everybody, like, on a per capita basis. That is the best possible group to have. She's going after that. Um, But it's really hard to know. People think that Bloomberg might be disqualified because of stop and frisk. I think not necessarily so. For young voters, sure. But for older voters who are looking for some place to go, they may you know, have they're getting seen wall to wall blanket coverage. And he does he can make the case on other issues. Uh, he may he may have a pathway for the black vote. If Biden collapses, Bloomberg might actually be competitive, not with younger black voters, but with more reliable older black voters.
1: Um, I thought the Democrats spent a lot of time last night uh, deservedly talking about uh, race at the debate. Here's some of what they said
7: we got to stop taking the black community for granted. That's the starting place.
1: Year after year after year, election after election after election, Democrats go to people in the black community and say, boy, we really care about these issues. Racism is terrible. We all want to do something. And then somehow the problem just seems to keep getting worse. Is this a little late?
7: might be a little bit late, but I tell you what, it's good to hear some acknowledgement of that, because Mm. that is a consistent thing. Listen, if you're an African-American voter, you understand. I get it. I'm supposed to stand in a five-hour-long line in the Mm -hmm. freezing cold in Michigan Mm -hmm. so the Democrats can win and then never speak to me again (laughs) for four years. Right. And it's gotten old and tired. And so I think that's—and the other thing that happens— within our party, is that, you know, we'll spend a billion dollars on an election. Ninety-seven percent of the campaign dollars go to white male-owned firms. Mm. And Mm. so, you know, so again, what is it we're getting out of this relationship? And so I think think that it can strengthen the African-American community overall, having the competition uh, between the two parties. For a long time, the black vote was taken for granted by Democrats Mm. and written off by Republicans. That's not happening this year.
1: Well, I wonder if you think Democrats have also left themselves a little vulnerable by focusing um, so much on impeachment and investigations, huh? not, not unimportant things, but, uh. right, <laughs> I wonder, mm. you know, there might have been some more important mm. issues to black voters. Mm.
7: <laughs> you know, uh, I would accuse my party at this point of having engaged in three years of fantasy football politics, mm. where we said, OK, don't worry, Trump is never going to be seated because the Electoral College will not seat him. Remember that? Oh, I do. Oh, oh don't worry, Bob Mueller is going mm. to take him out of the White House in handcuffs. Remember that? I do. Oh, don't worry, he's gonna be impeached and removed. Mm-hmm. Okay, now after three years of all that fantasy football, guess what we have? Trump is still in the White House yep. and we still don't have a candidate. And the way we've developed our issues may, may, may or may not even serve us. Had we spent the past three years accepting reality that you know, a bunch of people who voted for Obama twice voted for Trump, mm. hard to call them Nazis, mm and listen to them in addition to our own constituencies and figured out what they needed, we might be in a position to have Trump on the run. The reality is uh, all the, the, the blood, sweat and tears over impeachment, Bob Mueller, all that kind of stuff has not done anything to dent Trump. Trump is actually higher in the polls than he's ever been and we still don't have a candidate.
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, Good to see you. Thanks for coming by. I'm sure we'll have more of
7: this discussion. (laughs) And on that cheery note.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really took the wind out of my sails. All right. One man did a remarkable thing this week. His job. That's next. If it wasn't clear from President Trump's nonstop airing of grievances and revenge fantasies, He actually had a great week. Impeachment acquittal, strong economic numbers, court victories, a made-for-TV state of the union, all good for him. The one dark spot for the president may serve as this country's bright spot, Senator Mitt Romney. The Utah senator solidified his place in history as the only member of the Senate to cast a vote to convict an impeached president from their own party. Not just now, I mean ever. Here's how he explained his vote.
3: (sighs) I'm a man of faith. I believe that when I swear an oath to God, I have a responsibility to be exactly truthful. And I am truthful and, and did what I believed was absolutely right for our country. And uh, and hope that going forward, uh, people will, will say, well, whether I agree with him or disagree with him, at least he did what he thought was right.
1: Not surprisingly, Trump and the White House are taking this personally and promising vengeance, not just against Mitt Romney, against anyone he perceives as having been disloyal during the impeachment process. This week, that included Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the Purple Heart recipient. He was escorted out of the White House yesterday. Former ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, he was recalled from his post. Now, that will have a chilling effect, as intended, But whether Senator Mitt Romney can weather this storm may determine what kind of Republican party and indeed republic we have once we no longer have a President Trump. With me now is former Romney presidential campaign advisor Kevin Sheridan. Um, Kevin, first, I just want to ask, what was your reaction to Romney's vote and speech on the Senate floor?
6: Uh, I was surprised that he cast that vote, but I, but I wasn't shocked. Um, I think we, we all thought that he may. Uh, he says he voted his conscience, and uh, I think we take him at his word for, uh, for doing that. And, um, you know, this is not a popular position within the Republican Party, obviously. Uh, he's the only one of the, all those senators. They all had to face the same vote, and he came to a different decision than they, than they did. Um, that said, I, I don't see him being like completely ostracized from the party, as Hmm. some have said, or, uh, you know, vengeance is going to be taken against him. I think uh, I think life will move on. I think we'll get, uh, you know, some mean tweets from the president and uh, (laughs) and probably some lines at his rallies. But ultimately, I think people will move on to the next thing.
1: It's going to be okay. Um, Democrats are lauding Romney's courage, deservedly. But I know you remember 2008 and 2012. I do, too. Uh, They tried to tell us that he was a monster, a racist, sexist monster. Do you think that Democrats regret that now or should they?
6: Well, it's not lost on anybody who watched the 2012 campaign or worked on it like it, it, it. It's 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 galling to hear people now saying what a man of principle he is when they when they were trashing him uh, yeah. for everything under the sun in 2012 and really smearing a good man. And uh, yeah. look, he, this is who he is. He voted his conscience, and I think we should take him for his word on that. He's going to have to face his voters. He's going to have to go back and explain the vote yeah. to them. Uh, I'm sure this will not be a super popular thing within his party, a little more in Utah than other, where, in and other places, but look, Joe Manchin is going to have to go back to West Virginia and, and explain too, his right. vote too, because that's very unpopular in West Virginia as well. So, yeah, you know, you've got a couple of cases where the, it was it was a very tough vote, and uh, you know, we'll see how they they make their explanations.
1: Some will say, some are saying that Romney could afford to to make this vote because he's not up for re-election until 2024. Um, but you know him. Do you think if he'd been up for re-election this year in 2020, do you think he would have made the same vote?
6: I can only guess. I, I, I really don't know. I haven't talked to his team about it uh, extensively, but I think um, I think it's likely at this stage of his career that he's probably feels a lot more liberated to do what he what he sees as his conscience is what he wants to do. Uh, you know, he's already he's lost a presidential race and that's the toughest thing you can do. And and so I think he's just going to you know follow his own path and, and let the chips fall where they may. Do you
1: expect him to talk more about this vote and his decision over the next few days, weeks, months, or do you expect him to kind of put it behind him?
6: Well, he did a pretty extensive round of interviews and uh, he's, yeah. he's made his position pretty clear. So I don't know how how long this story really has to last. I mean, in our news cycles, we've got hundreds of things going on uh, between now and the election. And I think we're we're probably going to get right into another uh, controversy that he'll have to weigh in on then.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, knowing Trump, you know, this story will not go away if Trump keeps tweeting about it and Trump keeps bringing it up at rallies. I wonder if Mitt Romney feels like, you know, he's going to have to maybe be defending this for the next four years, (laughs) potentially.
6: Yeah, or you know, when impeachment two comes along and see how he votes then, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, because the Democrats are not going to let this go away. They're going to they're oh, find something else. Or, there, yeah. Kevin.
1: All right, uh, Kevin Sheridan, strong beard. I appreciate it, and thanks oh, for coming on. I knew you'd like it. That's it for me. All right, Thank guys. You. Quick programming note. Get ready for the story of the world's most famous royal family. CNN presents The Windsors Inside the Royal Dynasty, premiering February 16th at 10 p.m. Ana Cabrera is back with the latest headlines in the newsroom. That's next. And about-